Hello, my friends. Welcome to the Wildcast. I have an amazing guest who's going to answer a lot of important questions I've personally had about Judaism and the Torah specifically. And it's a question that I think a lot of my students, I know it's a question a lot of my students, because everybody's looking for a rational basis to living their lives. We don't want to just be rational in the workplace or be rational in certain relationships. And then when it comes to our religion, we just sort of hang up our brains and just sort of faith away, right? I've never, that, that just never worked for me. So um, I'm a huge fan of my guest who I just came off an hour and a half conversation with. We didn't put the whole hour and a half on, so don't fret. Rabbi Joshua Berman is my guest. He is a professor of Tanakh, of Hebrew um, scripture, of the Bible at uh, Barilan University. He's a graduate of Princeton, and he got his rabbinic ordination from the Rabbanut, the chief rabbinate of Israel, after learning uh, at Yeshivat Hartzion, which is a very prominent yeshiva in Israel for eight years. So he is an unbelievable Torah scholar on one hand and also an academic, which is wor- really why I wanted him on the podcast, because I want academics have to prove what they think. And I want him to be able to, I wanted to bring someone on that could demonstrate why you believe the Bible is real, its stories are true, and it actually comes from a higher place. We spent a great, a good deal of time trying to understand other views of those who view the Bible as having been written or redacted, what's called the Bible critics or the documentary hypothesis. We spoke about that and we talked about whether or not there's any evidence, any kind of archaeological evidence of like the Exodus story and other types of things. And what is a rational basis? Why should I believe in what the Bible has to say? Why should I follow its teachings? Is it just something I have to believe? Or is it something that there's an actual rational basis for? And we got into that in a big, bad way. So I hope you take a listen and enjoy Rabbi Joshua Berman. Okay, welcome to the Wildcast. I am so excited about this conversation to come. I have with me Rabbi Joshua Berman, a professor of Tanakh, professor of Bible at Bar Ilan, who is a real academic, very well respected in his field, studied at Princeton and at Yeshivot for many years, and is an ordained Orthodox rabbi at the same time. I want to just welcome you, Rabbi Berman. Thank you so much for being with us. Okay, thank you, Rabbi Wilds, and uh, thank you to the listening audience. So you have, uh, it is our pleasure, you fused the academic and religious worlds, um, or you're trying to, uh, in regard to some of our most fundamental beliefs. Um, mm-hmm. So here's my first question. You know, I'm an outreach professional, as you, as we, they call us. You know, I've been, I spent a lot of time trying to inspire my students who may not have had um, the benefit of a Jewish day school education. Um, to view the Torah as not just a great piece of literature, which we all know it is, but as God's word to us. So as as an academic and an Orthodox rabbi, and as your last book is entitled, Animamin, which means I believe, you believe. So why do you as an academic believe that the Torah comes from God? Or is is it something you simply accept as a matter of faith? Right. Okay. So let, let, let me say, first of all, uh, Rabbi Wilds, just about the one of the first things you said uh, about the, about fusing these two worlds, uh, uh, the world of, uh, of the academy and, uh, and, and, and belief and religion. Uh, I, I believe the two have to go together. Uh, there, there can be no true religion without truth. 
And so therefore, if we have, you know, demonstrated evidence of this, that or the other, then we have to account for that. We have to we have to work that into our system, Uh, especially in this day and age when, uh, you know, we're all online and we can all see all the claims that are made. Uh, There's just no hiding anymore. Uh, Maybe once Mm -hmm. upon a time, people erected walls. We can't erect walls anymore. We probably never should have. Okay, because we want we want to be we want to we want to worship God with the ultimate uh, uh, value. Uh, uh, and that is truth. That's number one. Um, um, uh, now, so to your question, uh, as an academic, there's things that I can believe, there's things that I can prove. So the fact that I believe in the uh, in, in the uh, the divinity of the Torah is not always something that I can prove, but I do believe that my that what I what I what I study academically does draw me closer to uh, to a conclusion, mm-hmm. or at least a a, a reasonable claim. Uh, uh, for me, that I seek, that I can see divinity in the Torah, and that's without the kippah on my head, without the yarmulke mm-hmm. that I wear on my head. And, and I see this specifically in in the Torah's view of political power, uh, that is just radically different uh, and intricately woven tapestry of clauses and ideas and concepts and institutions um, that we find in the Torah that create a far less hierarchical and stratified society than anything that was known outside of Israel uh, at the time. Um, um, Every great thinker is allowed one major innovation, but there are just too many innovations on this particular front about taking power away from the powerful and empowering the powerless uh, uh, that come out in the Torah all at once, all woven together. Either it's from God or there's some guy in a cave who we never know about who was the most brilliant political thinker of all time. That's my conclusion. <laughs> so you're saying that, that, and maybe you can give some examples of things that, that are in the Torah that you're saying are so out of whack with uh, those, the you know, antiquity or the values of antiquity right. that, right. that right. It, it bespeaks some other kind of force. Because why? Because who could have come up with this? Um, you know, living in those days kind of thing? Is that, is that the argument? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. In other words, it doesn't serve anyone's interest. Um, um, I'm, I'm thinking specifically, specifically of how, how uh, as I said, political power um, uh, in, in other cultures, they, they believed in hierarchy. They believed in stratification. That were, the station you were born into was the station you were meant to be in. And had you said, well, there's really a more enlightened idea, and that's called equality. You would have been laughed out of any society in the ancient world because they believe it's not just they didn't come up with the idea of of, of uh, egalitarianism or of equality. It's that they thought that the only way to have an ordered, uh, an orderly functioning world is where everyone knows their place with no social mobility. Uh, and what we see time and again is that the Torah in particular, but the Tanakh generally, is 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 pushing back against this idea um, from the very fact that. God speaks to the entire people. That never happened in any other in any other culture. If God spoke, he spoke only to the kings. The fact that the people are the ones that choose the king, that never happened anywhere else either. The fact mm-hmm. that the king is subject to laws, that never happened anywhere else either. Um, uh, 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 the fact that the, the, te- the temples, the, te- the temple, the Beit Mikdash, the temple, is it celebrates the connection between God and the people. In Egypt, if you've ever been to a temple in Egypt and you see the enormous colossi statues that are outside of the kings that built them, that's because those temples are so dedicated to the connection between the deity and the king. Um, um, in the Torah, 
uh, the people appoint the judges. That never happened anywhere else until Montesquieu, mm. a, a, great, a great thinker in the 16th century. Uh, the Torah gives out all of the land of, 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 uh, of, of, of the land of Israel to the tribes and to the people. Every single family in Israel gets a, a piece of the land. That is to say, they get a means of economic sustenance. This idea that the land, the entire land of a country, should not be belong to the king, not belong to the to the temple, but should be given out to the people. That has no precursor. Uh, in, so there's no precursor in, in in history, and there's no subsequent example of such a thing until the Homestead Act of 18, 1860, when the U.S. government gave all the land to to anyone that was willing to move out and suffer uh, the winters that were out there. That was, of course, after they did away with the people that had been there beforehand. But we're not going to talk about that right now. Um, and so there's an incredibly enlightened view of, of of power and of empowering the powerless, especially. Those are just a few examples. We'll wow. go on for the rest wow. of our hour. Talk no, about. I mean that's I. You know, it's funny because I think we. What's so interesting is I have this conversation with my students, and we kind of take for granted the the liberty and the equality and the freedom, and those values that let's say America um, rests upon. You know, mm-hmm. but where did those come from? You know, um, where 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 did the United States? I mean, I guess it was inspired the American Revolution by the French Revolution. But where did the French Revolution get it from? The Enlightenment. The Enlightenment got it from. Where did it all roll back to originally? You it, know? it rolled back to the Torah. That's what's very clear when you see the early modern thinkers and even the American founding fathers. They're constantly citing the the the, the Tanakh, yeah. the Bible, as their as their inspiration for. Uh, 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 the ills of monarchy and the importance of uh, of empowering the common person. Yeah, I was going to add also, do you think, or ask you really, do you think um, calling for peace and seeing peace as a value, which was also in a sense unknown to the ancient world, you know, we, we have um, meaning as a value, I think until Nietzsche, power, you know, might made right. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, when you see that verse, from Isaiah, from the prophet Isaiah, beat your swords into plowshares. It's mm-hmm. at the UN, mm-hmm. you know, nation mm-hmm. shall not lift. So I, I mm-hmm. you know, to the modern day person, it appears as though those are, you know, that's been, how long, how old is that? You know, um, in modern society, maybe it's a hundred years old, the, the, mm-hmm. the, the idea that peace is a virtue, um, right. Right. but that's been taught for thousands of years by right. the prophets. Right. right, good point, yep. Mm-hmm. But let me ask you, just staying on this for a moment. So the um, so that that is of course a strong indication that that whoever wrote the Torah, okay, that whoever whoever's behind the Torah was clearly ahead of their time, okay. Um, mm-hmm. You know that person who came out of the cave and somehow, or you know mm-hmm. what we would believe as God. Mm-hmm. What about the famous proof of um, the Kuzari, the great Hebrew poet and um, mm-hmm. He didn't like to be called a philosopher, but we, we usually mm-hmm. refer to him as such about the are, are you not a fan of the argument of mass revelation, the argument that the mass nature that we lay claim that not just Moses or the elders were at Sinai, but that it was to the entire populace, which, according to the Bible, could have been millions of people um, that reduces the chances. I know it's not a positive proof. But it does reduce the chance that the revelation story was made up. The mm-hmm. idea that millions of people would conspire at that time or some later period to fabricate an event and to say that not only did that event took, take place, but the witnesses of that event were numbered in the millions. Um, what, what is your opinion of that argument? 
Right. So Rabbi Waz, as I said, uh, you know, I, 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 I have to speak truth. And the truth is, is that I'm not a fan of that argument. Okay. Uh, the, the, tell me, tell reason, me why. Yeah. The reason is that in, in Hindu folklore, there's a very similar sort of thing. Where they said, oh, the masses saw the following amazing miracles. And uh, that's our proof that, you know, so they have exactly the same thing there. So if I believe that uh, that the Kuzari's uh, proof, as it were, is the is is a, is a bona fide uh, uh, proof for for revelation at Sinai, then I also have to believe that these great Hindu miracles happened, uh, you know, thousands of years ago and were witnessed by millions of people, just like they say they were. So since I don't want to have to believe in, in Hindu in uh, Hindu myths, uh, I don't want to have to uh, uh, put our Torah on that level either. So I'm going to push back on that because I actually I heard you I heard you share that I listened Mm -hmm. to a couple of podcasts where you were interviewed and I heard that mentioned I did a little research and there is in fact such a Mm -hmm. um, a belief within the Hindu tradition but their belief is that their belief is that it was a select group of their sages that heard the revelation what we're claiming was that it was the entire Uh -uh. populace now of course of course if you have a group of people Mm -hmm. it's better than a single person. But yeah. a, a group of people is still not the same as as the masses. Now we right. do have other religions claiming that the masses saw miracles, which is what you said. I'm talking about the revelation. I think that's another important distinction, mm-hmm. which is that, which is that we're not claiming that our ancestors. Not talking about the splitting of the Red Sea, the Exodus. I'm talking about the giving of the Torah at at, at Sinai, mm-hmm. which, according to many of my teachers, is not really viewed as a miracle. Okay, right. it was more of an encounter. Mm-hmm more of yeah. an encounter from God. That's something I heard from one of my teachers, Rabbi Chait, where he said, it's not like the splitting of the Red Sea, where you have to ask, how did that happen? Who was behind mm-hmm. that? You know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it, it defies the laws of nature. There was nothing about the giving of the Torah at Sinai that wasn't, I mean, obviously God communicating to human beings yeah. and making himself right. audible in human terms is a right. big deal, but it's not the same right. thing as seeing a, 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 an ocean split and then you're, your um the people chasing you drowned in it after you've been saved through it um mm-hmm. so what do you think of that like because I, I again and this is very important the language that we use i think is important i don't believe there's a proof for the for for the giving of the torah at son i don't believe there's i'm also a, an attorney so this would not hold up in a court of law in it in the sense of evidence but i think what people are looking for is what you know the book lawrence kellerman wrote permission to believe what I try to do as a rabbi or as an outreach rabbi is is give people permission to believe. And I think you just did that before with your argument from the mm. innovations of the Torah. I think that does give permission to people. Mm. But the mass nature, I don't want to lose that. I, I think that's powerful. Um, and not just homiletically that God cares about all Jews and not just the rabbis and the leaders, but he wants everybody to accept the Torah and to follow its ways. But the idea that um, that you know more people listening to it and more people claiming it happened like this reduces the chances of fabrication. So the Hindus, okay, they have a version of that, fine. And I also think there's a sect within Sikhism that also lays claim. But nobody lays claim. You, you, to you say already that. know more about these uh, these other traditions than I do, Rabbi. So I won't, I won't comment anymore. <laughs> well, on no, you're you're being honest yeah. and. And yeah. but no one really says that their entire nation was there for that moment, uh-huh. not when a miracle yeah. happened, for mm-hmm. that moment when the mm-hmm. when their God is giving over their truth. 
the way they want the, their God wants them to live. So therefore, mm-hmm. does would it still have credence? This argument, not as proof, but as a, a little more of a rational basis to let's say reduce the level, the chances this whole thing was made up. Let me put it this way: um, um, I, I, I don't personally resonate with that so much. It's not that it doesn't mm-hmm. have to resonate for other people, but since I have nothing else to compare it to. Um, I, 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 it's hard for me to latch on to. But when I, when I read the Torah and how it handles political power, and I see that, that, that in about literally a dozen different ways, what we find in the Torah um, uh, harkens towards developments that would come literally only thousands of years later. Uh, and it weaves all of these innovations in a very uh, a complex matrix of social life. Uh, in economics, politics, calendar, the way it relates to to to, to technologies of communication, um, that does it for me much more because that I can really feel that that I can sense that I can I can compare that uh, to 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 other other uh, other traditions of, of of political thought and measure how revolutionary any one moment was and I just this seems to me to be. Uh, a, a, blowout. a more, more compelling a case. Yeah, yeah, and and and, and is is that. No, I hear and I appreciate the honesty. Is that mm-hmm. a, um, you know, you've dealt and you've spent some time on, you know, dealing with the documentary hypothesis, the 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 the, the claim that the Torah was written by multiple human authors at different points in history, and what we refer to as the, I can never pronounce this right, the Pentateuch or the five books, is really a compilation of different, I think they say four different independent documents. Which were joined mm-hmm. together at a diff- at a certain various point, you know, various point by a series of editors or redactors. That's the claim of the documentary process. Now, what I've always said is that if that's if that's the situation, then how come that's not part of our story? I, I kind of go along the same lines as the mass revelation. If the story been handed down by so many people over thousands of years, is that our mm-hmm. you know our ancestors all stood at Sinai. You know, then and and if it's not if that's not the case, and it really was as a result of people who wrote it down at different times, how come that's not the story that we have been telling our children for thousands of years? Um, if the Torah was written by multiple human authors in separate documents, then why isn't that parents and teachers? Why isn't that it, it hasn't been told? You know, the Jewish story throughout history is that we got the Torah at Sinai, we moved on. So that's my response. So since mass revelation is not as much of a um, a powerful argument for you, or maybe not a compelling argument at all, what what would you say? What what do you say to your colleagues um, who advocate, you know, uh, the documentary hypothesis or other versions of it that that yeah. claim mm-hmm. the Torah was written by people at different times? Right. Uh, my, my my claim is that they are they are guilty of the original sin, uh, and the original <laughs> sin in biblical scholarship is uh, the, the conceit, um, the intellectual conceit, that um, I have the keys to the whole thing, meaning I can read a text from any time, in any place, in any age, in any language. And, and if I'm able to get it translated, it will stack up to the uh, 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 literary canons and conventions that I have in my time and in my place. Uh, put differently, since all of us are Greek, 
Yes, you and I, Rabbi Wilds, we are Greek, meaning whether we, whether we ever studied any Aristotle or not, all of us in the West have an intuitive sense of what constitutes literary unity, what is a contradiction, uh, what is a disjunction in a text. All of this is from Aristotle's work called the Poetics. And all the things that intuitively would make sense to you and me are from him. And amongst those things are the very seemingly good and legitimate non-agenda-driven questions that, that academic Bible scholars routinely ask about the biblical text. Why is this story told twice? Why are there contradictions between the telling of the story here and there, uh, such as two accounts of, 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 the, of creation at the beginning of Genesis, right. or such right. as some of the stories about uh, Israel in the wilderness in the books of Exodus and Numbers don't seem to line up with the versions that we have in the book of Deuteronomy about those same events, uh, uh, and on and on. And I call this the original sin because, in fact, we know that literary, literary conventions and sense of unity change drastically over time. And in fact, when we look at other ancient works from Egypt, from Babylon, from Ugarit, from the Hittite Empire, all these countries and societies of the ancient Near East, we in fact find exactly the same literary issues of seeming contradiction, seeming repetition that we find in the Torah, in the five books of Moses. And in those instances, we are certain that they were penned by a single author. For various reasons, this is the way they wrote. Often we can figure out why they were doing that. And those very same reasons apply here. The founding fathers of, of, uh, uh, of the documentary hypothesis were, lived in the 19th century, and they lived before scholars got hold of ancient Near Eastern works, which roughly was the last 20 years of the 19th century and continuing on ever since. Uh, so it's all anachronistic, and it's all out of this conceit, an intellectual conceit, as I said before, that, well, it doesn't make sense to me, born in the 20th century, looking at the, at, at the text with my eyes, so certainly the biblical author couldn't have possibly written that way as well. But we can now begin to understand why those things were written that way when we get hold of other texts. And, and you're claiming, thank you, and you're claiming that um, if we just accept that the Bible was written at a, um, in a different kind of form, you know, not, you know, not similar to the way we're used to things today, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That, how does that, how does that lead us to believe that there's a divine author behind that. That, that doesn't well, necessarily... Doesn't, no, no, the, no, the right, no, those are two separate things. In other words, when, when, when uh, uh, critical scholars come to the conclusion that because of the various literary phenomena that they see within the text, that there must be here more than one author, multiple hands, to that, 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 to that I say, you know, you're looking with 21st century eyes, uh, influenced by the works of Aristotle, which biblical authors had no, no, no notion of. The, all, all that that gets us to is that the critique of the Torah, that it was written by multiple hands, is is is, is founded on a great a great methodological mm -hmm. weakness. Okay, that's all. It's based on the it's based on sort of modern day thinking categories yep. Yep. that were yep. not extant in the days of the Bible. Right, but they're very that. obvious and intuitive to us. Just just you know, if there's any doubt about that, let me let me let me if if, if I can, Rabbi. Yeah, uh, please, uh, please engage engage the audience in in the following mind game. Okay, it's really illustrative. Um, um, Jews that endured the Holocaust, when did they become survivors? Okay, that's a really weird question. 
That's a really mm-hmm. bizarre question. You might say to yourself, what kind of question is that? Like, what kind of answer could a person give to that? Was that when the war ended? Was it when, when they were liberated? When they went, went to a new home? Or, or why would anyone even ask such a question? So I'm going to say to you that, that people, the, the Jews that, in, that endured the Holocaust, you know when they became survivors of the wilds? In 1979. 1979. What do I mean by that? It's the word survivor that we use, which is such an obvious word. What else would you call a Jew who had endured the, endured the Holocaust other than a survivor only came into use in the late 1970s. And that's because in 1976, there was this math, this huge uh, miniseries on what they used to call television, uh, Roots, uh, about about black slave culture in the U.S. Sure, sure. And, and it, it kind of lit a huge awakening of ethnicity and 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 and, uh, and 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 ethnic culture, and then following that, there was this massive miniseries Holocaust, and that's where finally these people were called survivors in the late '40s and early '50s when these people came to the United States. And I'll explain why all this ties together. They were not called mm-hmm. survivors; they were called immigrants. They were called displaced persons. They were called refugees. In Yiddish, they were called Grina, which kind of means like newbies. Nobody mm-hmm. referred to them as survivors. The word survivor, it turns out has a whole cultural baggage with it that implies it implies um, um, ingenuity, strength of spirit, courage, determination. All of that only started in the 1970s. I raised that, Rabbi, because you know if you were to t- say to somebody, you know, once upon a time, Jews that endured the Holocaust were not called survivors, I'm certain that the vast majority of our listening audience would say, what? What else would you call such people? This just mm-hmm. demonstrates how one little thing, the word survivor, which we take as so obvious that that's how you would refer to such people. It turns out, no, once upon a time and not so long ago, this wasn't obvious at all. So the, so many things, that this is what I love about being a scholar, so many things that we take as totally obvious so that we can't even imagine that there was a world that was different. Whoa, time and time again, I just see vast differences between what was once upon a time and where we are now. You never know where it's going to turn up again. Okay. So when I say that once upon a time, people had a very different sense about how to write, how to communicate, what's a contradiction. There isn't even a word for contradiction in ancient Hebrew or in rabbinic literature. Oh, maybe in rabbinic literature there is. Certainly not in the Tanakh, in the Bible. Um, yeah, just using that, that term survivor already alerts us. Whoa, if that wasn't always the way things were, what else wasn't always the, the way things were? Okay. Yeah. And and is this along the lines? I, I have taught the uh, Rabbi Salvechik's Lonely Man of Faith for many mm-hmm. years, and you know I teach it primarily for the same reason a lot of rabbis teach it because it's just so powerful explaining the existential sort of makeup and composition of humanity. But what Rabbi Salvechik was doing also, I guess as an aside, I don't know if this was the purpose of the book, mm-hmm. was to answer one of those contradictions that the Bible critics bring up that you just alluded to about Genesis chapter 1 versus chapter 2, where Adam and Eve's creation is described very differently. Okay, for example, Adam, just for the listeners, Adam uh, in chapter 1 is described in coming into the world together, created simultaneously with Eve. Zachar nekeva God created them, as opposed to chapter two, where Eve is, where Adam is all alone. That's a story most people are familiar with. And then he's with the animals, and then he takes a long nap, and then Eve wake, he wakes up, and Eve's beside him. Okay, so Rav Salvechik is explaining that that this is a done. Whoever wrote the Bible, he doesn't even talk about it there. You know, was trying to give over two aspects 
that people are complex. There's an atom one part of us, there's an atom two part of us, there's a part of us that's that's a you know I like to say like the yuppie that like need two hands are better than one. That's what he's created together with Eve. His job is Vikivshua to conquer the world. Versus Adam two, he has a different perspective. So I I love that. Are you saying uh, is that sort of along the lines of what you're saying that you know we see a contradiction, um, and in modern times we see a contradiction. It must be that you know author A wrote chapter one, author B wrote chapter two. Yeah, Whereas, exactly. What, what, yeah. What, what Rabbi Soloveitchik was doing is, is not apologetics. We know that this is exactly what, when he explicates the Torah in that way, the accounts of creation, two totally vastly different accounts in chapters one and two of Genesis, uh, he is being faithful to the way that we know, for example, that uh, the greatest pharaoh of all time, Ramses II, otherwise known as Ramses the Great, which many scholars believe was the Ramses of the Exodus, um, uh, we know that he did exactly the same thing. He had this great battle uh, called the Battle of Kadesh against his archenemy, the Hittites, in 1274 BCE. And we know that when he came home from Egypt, excuse me, to, to Egypt, uh, uh, from this battle, he plastered all of Egypt with, with multiple accounts. In, 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 I'm talking about just, not just one account here and in another city, another account. In many places, in the same temple, or on the same monument, he puts up two and sometimes Three accounts of that battle that are not the same, that are contradictory. And why does he do this? Because he's trying to teach three different lessons. One account is about the greatness of his god, Amun. The second one is about uh, his greatness in battle, his valor. And a third account is coming to emphasize the valor of a particular regiment of his army. And it didn't bother him one hoot that, that he was using different details. The whole point was mm -hmm. to, bring out, to bring out some great idea, some great lesson, for his people, for his subjects, and uh, uh, you know, shaping and 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 molding the uh, the facts didn't bother him in the least, and no one ever accused him of contradiction, and no one ever thought that this was written by more than one author. Okay, so this is so this is thank you. This is just to clarify for our listeners. This is not a evidence, therefore, that God wrote the Torah, but right. this is a response. Right. To That's those right. who claim this is this must be proof because A contradicts B. Chapter one is different than chapter two. Right? Uh, must m must be multiple authors. You're saying no. This was uh, something done in the ancient world. That's right. Where That's right. where co conflicting uh, versions of the same incident That's would right. be recorded to teach different lessons. But right. the real reason we believe in Torah Minishamayim, <laughs> in the Torah coming from God. Um, would be because of so many other things that you find in the biblical text that seem so innovative, or, or at least in your or mind. Because, I mean, that's... You know, or, or, or because it's, it's our tradition. You know, I don't, I don't discount that. You know, I think that the Jewish history is, 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 is an incredible thing. You know, the fact that we're here, you know, against all odds, the fact that the state of Israel has been reborn uh, and, and flourishes, you right. know, built up from, from nothing, from the desert without any precedent, that a, that a language is brought back to life is without any precedent, um, uh, that a dispersed people has come together is without precedent. Uh, you know, all these things I find to be uh, incredibly inspiring. Yeah, I, I, I use that, if you will, uh, in my class when I teach about God. In mm -hmm. other words, the two external um, supports for the belief of a supernatural creator. One is science, teleological argument, the complexity of the universe. The second is what you just said, is that how do you explain the continued existence of the Jewish people? You know, we, we, Hanukkah's approaching. So you could say... You could explain the Hanukkah story that we had some very good, the Maccabees were great military tacticians mm -hmm. and we got the upper hand from the Greeks. We kicked them out, but 
Can you really explain Hanukkah, Purim, every other episode in Jewish history, including 1948, 1967, and, and so on and so forth? That, that to me, I think is a very power, powerful argument, not for the Torah, but for, for there being some sort okay. of force guaranteeing the continued existence of the Jewish people. Yeah, yeah. Or I'll, I'll add something that I that I read uh, uh, written by uh, uh, my 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 mentor and Rebbe uh, of blessed and sainted memory, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, who who, mm-hmm. who notes that from the ancient Near East, the only text that has really survived continuously uh, is the Bible uh, since that time. And from the period called the Dark Ages, you know, like through the year I don't know eight hundred or nine hundred, uh, the only text, or certainly the the longest text. Uh, that, that continues to have uh, any currency anywhere today, the longest text, is the Babylonian Talmud. Uh, and this mm-hmm. despite the fact that we have been the most dispersed and the most persecuted of peoples. That's not, wow. that's, that's, that to me is, is impressive. Yeah. yeah, that is amazing. Mm-hmm. That is amazing. Just on that, um, while, while we're touching on the Exodus, the splitting of the Red Sea and all that, I'm curious why you you believe it happened um, is there some sort of archaeological evidence you're looking at, or you believe it happened because, in general, you accept the Torah for the reasons that we shared earlier, and it's in the Torah. It's, if it's a story in there, since I accept the Bible because of its innovation and other reasons that we've been sharing, or, or is there something? Is there anything independent that corroborates, let's say, the Exodus, which is a major narrative in the Bible, uh, or even something more specific like the splitting of the Red Sea? Um curious if that's a basis, if there is anything out there, if you can share with our listeners. Okay, so I, I distinguish for myself here uh, uh, Exodus and the splitting of the sea. Okay, those are mm-hmm. part of the same story, but, but the, the, the resources that I have to, to address each are, are, are of a different nature. Okay, so with, um, uh, uh, with regard to Exodus, by which I mean uh, the claim that there was uh, a people Israel enslaved in Egypt and that they were liberated uh, uh, and, and, and by God. Okay, so um, let me let me let me uh, 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 preface this by by with the following um, following little illustration. Um, many of us who have sat around the seder table, which I suspect many of our listeners have, probably all, mm-hmm. uh, are familiar from from the the Haggadah, which which you know the text that we read at the seder. Uh, with the phrase that God took us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Okay, now that phrase, it turns out, within the Bible, uh, is not a very common phrase and is really only found with regard to the uh, events of the the, the Exodus. Um, we don't find elsewhere that when God does a miracle, that that phrase is used, mighty hand and outstretched arm. I raise this because it's just a wonderful coincidence that when we look at the inscriptions of the pharaohs of the Egyptian New Kingdom. 1500 to 1200 BCE, uh, which would fit the period of the enslavement by traditional dating, uh, what we find is that routinely the pharaohs, the escapades of the pharaohs are described as having been achieved with the pharaoh's mighty hand or the pharaoh's outstretched arm. Uh, The pharaoh defeated the Libyans with his mighty hand. The pharaoh bagged 120 elephants with his outstretched arm. And on and on, Literally, literally hundreds and hundreds of times. So that what appears that's going on here is that the Torah is engaging in cultural appropriation. That is, the Torah is familiar with ancient Egyptian writings, the propaganda of the pharaohs, and it's seeking to out-pharaoh the pharaohs 
by stealing their thunder, by using their propaganda against them to describe their own defeat. Okay? That only mm-hmm. goes so far as to tell us that some Israelites at some point were apparently quite familiar with uh, some elements of, of uh, uh, royal Egyptian propaganda. Now, one of my claims takes that, and, and, and th- that argument and goes with it on steroids in the following way. That, that, that I claim, this is what actually this is what you're referring to, was covered in the Wall Street Journal, um, is, is the following claim that the story of the Exodus, the Jew, the, the Israelites leaving Egypt, being pursued by Pharaoh's chariot army, being led to the sea, the sea swallowing them up, and then them offering praise to God for their salvation. Uh, there is an incredible parallel, series of parallels in similar terms. Uh, between those two chapters of the book of Exodus and uh, the, 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 uh, uh, the composition that I referred to before, the battle inscriptions of, of, uh, uh, of Ram- the Kadesh inscriptions of Ramses II, his battle at, the, his battle at the, this place called Kadesh against the Hittite Empire. Um, and what seems that's happening is that the Torah is stealing that, that thunder, which was a very well-known work in the time of Ramses and only in the times of Ramses II. We know that even servants at the time knew about it because we found copies of it in their villages in Egypt. And that what the Torah is doing is that it is, it is, it is framing uh, uh, and molding the, the, the story of the Exodus so that Israelites coming out would say, oh, oh, I get it. The God of Israel is even greater than the greatest king mm-hmm. of the greatest period mm-hmm. of Egyptian history in his greatest achievement, this battle of Kadesh. Um, and that type of thing can only happen if there were a serious number of Israelites in Egypt and if they had experienced something that, 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 they, that they construed as a liberating event uh, in the time of Ramses II. Okay? So, for, so for that, that that's, the, that's the short description of why I, I, I do believe that there is compelling evidence for an Exodus event. Okay. When we come to uh, uh, the, the, the issue of the splitting of the sea, so I, I don't have the same type of home run evidence. Uh, I know that there are people that, uh, that have seen some type of video that's out there on the, on, on, on the internet of, of what looks like a chariot wheel underwater. And they say, oh, there's your proof. No, but that's, that's, uh, that's not serious. That's not serious. And here, the truth of the matter is, uh, as, as you probably know, Robert Wilds, that um, even with in uh, uh, the rabbinic tradition, there have been voices that have wondered, are the events there fully as they are described? Uh, Rabbi Soloveitchik, for one, believed that uh, the, the, plagues were, the plagues were as described, more or less, but that they, 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 were, they were natural events that happened to occur at just the right moments, like there's exponential explanations or water turning red or for, you know, an infestation of frogs, et cetera, et cetera. In other words, he downplays the kind of supernatural uh, description of, uh, of the events. And, and I think Rabbi Jonathan Sachs also in the same vein. What's important for me here. Uh, and yeah, that I, was I, the Rambam's. That was, that yeah, was, I, that was I, the Rambam's I wasn't approach. there, so I don't know. But what is important for me to, to, to underscore here is that um, we live in an age where either accounts that we read are 100% fully factual, or otherwise, in our eyes, they are nothing but fake news, and they lose all their credibility. Um, uh, and I say that when, when, when uh, uh, 
Listeners, if that's the way that you, be, you view the Bible, that it has to be 100% accurate or it's fake news, I say to you, the problem is not the Bible, it's fake news. The problem is such readings are by people who are fake Jews. This is not the way to read the Bible. <laughs> the Bible, as, 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 as said uh, explicitly by uh, uh, Rabbi Abraham Isaac uh, uh, Cook, who was the first chief rabbi of, of, uh, of the land of Israel before, before the founding of the state. And he said that the Torah uh, uh, is designed to instill messages. It will take events that happen. If it feels that the events uh, 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 described exactly as they were will instill the messages that the authors or that God wants to instill, then that is how it will write it. And if God or the other biblical authors believe that it requires an embellishment to make the events have the type of power so that so that the accounts have the power and teach the lessons that readers and listeners need to, to, to hear, then, then it will do that. Uh, and the truth is, is that this is why all ancient uh, writers of history worked. So there's nothing unusual mm -hmm. here, but it is important to read the Bible in its own terms. Again, not in our terms. Right, right. No, you made that point very powerfully. It, mm -hmm. Is there, though, I know you're not an archaeologist, but mm -hmm. is there any external? All of this is being from the Torah itself. You know, the language, the the, the appropriation yeah. of yeah. of Egyptian kind of language. Is there um, right. um, any other archaeological evidence for for the Exodus um, or any well, other well, parts see, of the Bible? I, I, you're I aware think of? I think that 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 question is a kind of a, a, a loaded one in an unfair way. Meaning that I think that a lot of people, well-meaning, not necessarily anti-Semitic or 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 or, uh, or atheist, have said, "Listen, we read the Torah." And then we go look at, at, at what we have from ancient Egypt. And we have a lot from ancient Egypt. And we don't see any mention of Israelites or of Moses or of plagues or of, or of slaves upping and outing. So I guess there's no proof. Uh, and, and I think that, 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 that uh, we need to read the other way. We need to read Egypt, i.e. you read something like the Kaddish inscriptions of Ramses II. And then you see that the Torah is intimately familiar with it. That's just as strong. And that there's a good right, reason why we might not find the type of archaeological evidence that people are looking for. For example, the area where the, where, where the Israelites were, were enslaved, which the Bible describes as the land of Goshen, is today totally submerged underwater. So what are you, what are you expecting to find? Or, you know, we would say, well, wait a minute, these are such calamitous events that surely anyone writing about the history of Egypt would have mentioned them. Yes, except there was no such thing as writing history. Oh, they wrote about the past. Yes, they did that. They did that. But you have to understand the genre of writing. Okay? It's kind of akin to the following scenario. Imagine that you, uh, you, you have a, an opening in your office and you put out a call for people to submit resumes to fill this position. You get a big pile of resumes, 100 resumes. You go through all of them and you say, wow, what a talented group of people. Not a single one of them was ever fired. And I said, how do you know that? You say, well, I went through all their resumes. They wrote about their entire professional experience. Not one of them ever wrote that he was fired. And I would say, well, yeah, that's a resume you're reading. What do you expect? <laughs> it's the same thing. The Egyptians are writing about the past, not for you and me, Rabbi Wilds. They're writing about the past for their gods. They're submitting reports about how great they were. So they never talk yeah. about bad news. So what do you expect them to write about slaves? Right. Now, I've been, listen, I've been sharing that for years, you know, um, but obviously if we found something, um, what was the, um, wasn't there some reference, I forgot, on, on one of these, um, slates um an egyptian who was it a great egyptian um archaeologist found mimeth not mimeth i'm just blanking excuse my ignorance i there thought there was some Stella. 
the Menephthys fellow? Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. The reference to Israel? Isn't there, yeah, there, there is? is a reference to sure. Israel. Yeah. 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 The, the earliest reference with the, to the term Yisrael, Israel, outside of the Bible, uh, is from Egypt, from 1206 BCE. I've seen it with my own eyes. Uh, it's in the Egyptian Museum. And it is by uh, Pharaoh Merneptah, um, one of the pharaohs. And what he describes there is uh, um, a kind of a, a, a military campaign that he launched into what then was known as the land of Canaan, or today roughly the land of Israel and Lebanon, maybe part of Syria. And he gives a long list. And, you know, I went to this place and I cut off all their heads. And I went to this place and I wiped them out. And I went to this place and I destroyed it. And he mentions, he says, and Israel, uh, uh, its seed is no more. What's fascinating about that reference is that in Egyptian, uh, sometimes they give like names, you know, Israel or Ashkelon or Philistines or whatever it might be. And next to it is a little sign that indicates whether that entity is a settled kingdom or a nomadic people. Next to the word Yisrael is the sign for an unsettled people. That means that that might be Israel as they had just entered the land, because we know from the book of Joshua and the book of Judges that when they crossed the, 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 the Jordan River and entered the land, they didn't capture Israel overnight. There was a long period mm -hmm. of, of, of right. unsettlement before there was settlement. So that's a very interesting uh, uh, finding. And this pharaoh uh, lived after Ramses, the one that we believe that's right. yeah. was... He was right. He was, the, he was the next one. He was his son. Yeah. Oh, yeah. he was his son. And, yeah. and then obviously when he says Israel, its seed is no more, he, he's lying about that. We're assuming well, just Rabbi, to show his victory. Rabbi, Rabbi, <laughs> here we are, right? I mean, you know. <laughs> yeah. I know two rabbis having this conversation a few thousand years later seems to contradict yeah. that. Okay, yeah. wow. Um, well, this is, this is uh, you know, I'll tell you, I want to share something. Someone listening to this might say, what does it matter? What does it matter if these events actually happened or not? You know, I, I was once debating, um, I was on a panel at the 92nd Street Y many years ago. Uh -huh. There was a reform, conservative reconstructionist rabbi, and I was, I guess, the orthodox zealot on the uh, stage there. Mm -hmm. uh, the conversation was about chosenness. And uh, what is our views on Chosen? We each had 15 minutes to present. And when I finished my presentation, which was essentially about um, what we were chosen because we had a relationship, and I went through the whole relationship between God and the Jewish people from the days of Abraham, the Reconstructionist rabbi got up and said everything Mark just said was really sweet and interesting. But none of it happened. You see, there was no Abraham. There was no Isaac and Jacob. And then he went on to say that, but does it really matter? Because after, after all, you know, it really matters just the way we live. And we don't need to believe that these people actually walked the face of the earth, that these were, you know, they could have just been made up mythical figures, but we're learning great lessons from them. Now, I'll tell you the way I responded, <laughs> but I'd like to hear, I'd like to hear your response to that. What would you say to that rabbi? Does it matter? Does it not? If, as long as we're making the world a better place, as long as you and I are becoming more ethically refined people, we get people to stop killing other people, we get people to give charity and, and lead more ethical lives, maybe even become more spiritually connected to some supernatural source out there. What does it matter if this stuff is true or not? Mm -hmm. So uh, let, me, let me respond first as a scholar. 
the, the way in which the Torah tells its stories, uh, starting from the patriarchs, uh, is vastly different than myth. Myth never has history. Myth is always one, one, one kind mm-hmm. of frame in time. It's never a whole story that plays out uh, 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 over over many years, over many generations. Um, so, so that maybe you could say that the story of creation, or the story of Adam and Eve, or maybe even the story of the, the flood, seems to have resemblance to myth. But once we get to the patriarchs, we don't find myths that look like those stories. But more to the mm-hmm. point, I think that when you take the Bible, no, that's whole, very. By the way, that's yeah. that's very important. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've never heard that, and I appreciate that just mm-hmm. just from the way because he's making an assumption about about myths, you know, in, yeah. in, in being very detailed types mm-hmm. of stories. But, but right, continue, and, and also, you know, the, the the myths, you know, Adam, Eve. When did Adam and Eve live? Where did they live? I don't know. It's somewhere Eden. Where's Eden? You know what I mean? That has a kind of you can understand why someone might say that that has a mythic uh, uh, characteristic to it. But myths never talk about concrete people in concrete places in concrete times relative to other historical events okay it's just not the way myth works myths are about kind of universal truths by making up you know aesop's fables you know a couple of animals talking to each other or a couple of heavenly figures talking to each other they're never rooted in place or time uh, or anything else that you can like latch onto as part of as part of human history um more significantly i think that that uh, uh this all matters because if I had to sum up, if you took all of the narratives and all of the pro- all of the prophetic literature, okay, in the Bible, I'm talking now about about you know at least eighty to ninety percent of what we call the Hebrew Bible, I can sum it up in two sentences: when Israel does God's will, she is rewarded, and when Israel fails to do God's will, she is punished. And here's the proof. Because this happened, and this happened, and this happened, and this happened. Okay, since that is the overarch, what I've just said covers literally eighty to ninety yeah, percent of yeah. the Bible. Then that only has that only has it only makes sense if the Bible itself believes that these events happened more or less the way they're depicted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that's powerful. In other words, if 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 so much of the Torah is about the Jewish people either following or not following in God's right. ways, right, and the consequences of following and not following—that's the important. Right. That's very interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll tell you, my my answer was was much more practical. <laughs> it was not nearly okay. as scholarly. They gave me two minutes to respond, literally 120 seconds. Okay. So I I turned back to the audience, and it was a big group, and I said, "Listen." I don't have the time to go into why I think the Torah comes from God and it's real and its stories are true. But my colleague just made a claim that it doesn't matter. So I'm going to ask everyone a question here. If God forbid you had a relative on a, um, on life support and you needed to know what the ethics were of taking that person off life support, ending their life or you live in a very nice neighborhood with nice Jewish day schools, you know, which cost $30,000 a year, yeah, but the public right. school system is really good and it's free. <laughs> How many people would be willing to pay $30,000 in this audience <laughs> to send matter. your kids to a Jewish school where they would learn stories that were made up, that were written by people and fabricated and just sort of myths, even though they teach great lessons? Is it really worth the 30 k so, and, and I said, and so now not, not one person with 200, at least 200 people in the audience, not one person raised their hand for either of my two questions. Mm-hmm. 
And when, and all I was trying to say was, look, I said, I didn't make a case here for the divinity of the Torah. We'll come back for another conversation about that. I said, but you claimed it doesn't matter. Truth matters. It matters whether this stuff is real or not. I mean, I like the answer you gave, which is that if it's all about following God's way or not following God's way, then then all of this stuff being made up does is, does not jive with that, right? Right. It has to be real then to to see whether or not. Otherwise, you're not. Otherwise, it's not proving anything. It's not documenting anything. Right. Otherwise, yeah. right. The whole purpose of these of the Bible seems to be negated. But I'm yeah. saying that that you know, in my experience in life, people want to make decisions in life based on something greater than themselves. Mm-hmm. They don't want to pull that mm-hmm. plug because. Mm-hmm. They know maybe emotionally I'm feeling this way, but that's the beauty of halacha. The beauty of Jewish tradition is that we can root our behavior in the divine will. I can't prove that, you know, following the Torah is going to give you God's, you know, an expression of God's will, but I've got a, I've got a rational basis to believe in it. And more important, and what I try to do is I'm like, I believe in the 51% rule. Because I don't think anything is provable. Okay. Okay. You know, um, in in the legal system, you know, the, the to convict someone of a capital crime, we don't ask the prosecution to prove it a hundred percent. We ask them to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt, which is a high, which is high, but it's not a hundred percent. And we're willing to take someone's life in certain states in this country right. for right. for less than absolute proof. So I don't think I think people understand that there isn't, you know, a hundred percent proof. But what makes more sense to believe it? That this thing we call the Bible, that Jews have been following for thousands of years, was written by a bunch of people at certain times, or at, or at a certain time, or it comes from a higher place given to us as some sort of gift. And, you know, there are arguments both ways. And I think that if, if um, you know, making the claim that, um, you know, that it doesn't matter, I, I, I think, uh, you know, it does. <laughs> yeah, that's very practical. That's my feeling. Yep. Mm-hmm. That's my feeling anyway. Um I want to ask you a question um on a very very practical level and we're finishing up here. None of this stuff gets taught in our classic Jewish day schools. And I understand. I wouldn't have this conversation with a 7th or 8th grader. But I was I was in these conversations I've of four kids um and I had this conversation with almost all of my kids when they were in high school because their teachers weren't having these conversations with them and they generally wanted to know and they were curious. And as our kids get into the more rebellious years of adolescence and they start questioning everything, the Bible is going to be one of those things. Now I get also not all of our teachers are trained to answer these questions and maybe opening up a Pandora's box, but what's your feeling? What's your feeling about making this somehow part of the curriculum? Because yeah. I'm just seeing how powerful um, these conversations, even if I don't get everyone to believe in everything, are to my students. And I feel like my own kids and, and people raised in the modern Orthodox world are deprived of this scholarship that you're sharing or some of the arguments of the Kuzari or some, you know, different things resonate with different people. And they don't get any of this. They have to kind of learn it despite the yeshiva curriculum. 
Um, all right, you already heard my little polemic on this, but what what what's your feeling about this? And I get the and I'd like to hear both. You know, what, whatever it is you feel about this. You no, know, I, I I've uh, I've both thought a lot about it, and I've I've had a lot of discussions with teachers about it, and I've also been invited into into classrooms, yeshiva day school, high, uh, high school classrooms in the U.S. via Zoom uh, to have some of these conversations. I I think I think that that. Uh, um, Maybe 80 to 90 percent of what we've discussed this, uh, here today, uh, Rabbi Wilds, could easily be incorporated with no downside into the curriculum. If you say, hey, kids, you know, this phrase that you all know from the Seder table of mighty hand and outstretched arm, you want to know something really cool about that? Like this is the way the Egyptians talked about that, talked about their kings and the Torah stole their thunder. I mean, there's no downside to that. That just that just makes the Torah suddenly really interesting that it does that type of thing, you know, the, the, just sort of the same way that we have, you know, fights here, you know, Black Lives Matter, no, Blue Lives Matter, that same type of dynamic of cultural appropriation or of stealing the thunder of the other side uh, is happening in the Torah as well. What that, can, can, that, I, can, can yeah. I just jump in? Can I play devil's advocate on that? Here's what I would yeah. say if I was a principal in that school and you yeah. came in and shared it. Yeah. I would say, Rabbi Berman, I'm nervous now that my kids... My students are going to start thinking that the Bible makes a lot of sense given the Egyptian culture in which it came out of, but maybe it doesn't apply anymore today. It's good for the Egypt. Right, it's good for right, that time. Right, but right. if we're trying to sell a Torah that's universal and that's eternal because it's from eternal, God. Eternal. That's the word. Eternal. Yeah. Right. So how, how, how can we come along and say that, that parts of it are culturally bound and time bound? But the problem is, Rabbi Wilde, is that so many of our classical commentators do exactly the same thing. Maimonides Agreed. goes to town Agreed. about this, and so does yeah. Maimonides and uh, yeah. uh, Ibn Ezra. These are all, you know, the great medieval uh, 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 commentators uh, uh, on, on, on our Torah. Uh, and none of them ever had a problem with this. Um, um, the, this, what, this, this type of investigation of, or kind of throwing light on, on various passages in the Torah um, um, in no way negates the, the, the eternity of the Torah. The eternity of the Torah does not mean that God somehow suddenly is able to communicate in a kind of divine Esperanto, that all men will understand equally in all ages. That can't be because humans are culturally bound, time-bound and place-bound. Our aesthetics change, our modes of communication change. And so there are things in the Torah that, 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 that are understandable across all ages. And then there are certain things in the Torah that are more accessible to one age and other things that are more accessible to another age. That's how you have the eternity of the Torah. When we say the, 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 the rabbinic, the rabbinic uh, uh, statement that there are 70 faces to the Torah, okay? What that means is there's no one simple reading of the Torah that says it all and says it the same way with equal force to all Jews at all time. It means that there's a multifaceted, multifaced Torah. And, and this is just one of those 70 faces. So I don't think that it negates the eternity of the Torah in any way. Well, but, but I'm, I'm going I'm, I'm yeah, to push back on that. I'm gonna, if, with your permission, I'm going to push back on that a little because a lot of people who are very a little more skip, skeptical well, say that this clearly you read it. It looks like it's coming out of some ancient Egyptian kind of at least the Exodus story, you know. The and and therefore it should be limited to that. What is what's eternal about that? Because our Dibra Torah Belashim Bnei Adam, the rabbis teach that the language of the Torah is in the the Torah had to be written the language of man so we can understand. But if God's the author, 
why couldn't God have come up with a language that didn't make it seem so tied to a particular age to lead us to think it would only apply in that age and not ours? Well, I, I think that the Torah, again, communicates in many, many ways. And again, in some generations, latch on to one part, understand one part more than others. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that there's no, there's, there's nothing wrong with saying that the Torah was, is given in the time of Moses and, and therefore had to communicate uh, uh, in, in, in a very primary, simple way to the people of that time using those, those, those conventions of thought and writing mm -hmm. uh, uh, and, and composition. Um, um, and that there are just many other aspects of the Torah is, which are, you know, which speak to all generations. Um, I, don't, I don't have a problem with that. I don't think that's uh, that, uh, that <laughs> I'll tell you something, somebody, yeah. so, something someone shared with me, a little controversial. He asked me about how I felt about Judaism and homosexuality. And we were having a conversation, a student of mine, uh, actually not a student of mine, like a friend, guy who went to yeshiva, your yeshiva actually, and uh, to Gush, and um, and he said, "Listen, when the Torah forbids homosexuality, you have to understand the context of homosexuality in the Bible, and the kind of homosexuality that the Bible, or at the day in those days, was were were people that were heterosexual, but as a purely physical pleasure would engage in homosexuality. So that maybe that's what the Bible, mm -hmm. maybe that's what mm -hmm. the Torah means mm -hmm. when it forbids homosexuality. It doesn't mean." two men who truly fall in love with each other and have a real relationship. Mm -hmm. It's, it's talking about someone who's, who's not born gay, who's really heterosexual, but is, is, let's is, say, um, let's say, let's say, <laughs> yeah, let's say it has no, it has no bearing on our practice today. The reason for that is that, um, um, the, 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 the halakha, the law that we follow, uh, is never, never was the literal meaning, uh, the literal word of the Torah. There was always interpretation given over to Moses, to the to the to the Sanhedrin, to the sages across the ages, uh, and we follow the law as it has evolved. Um, and there's no going back. So you know, it could be that one day there will be a Sanhedrin, a a, a great court of, of seventy of the seventy great sages of the world, as there once was. And I think that that they have. Uh, a lot of leeway to do to interpret things uh, in many different ways, but uh, lacking that type of uh, the buck stops here unifying element, uh, what we have is is the law as we have it now. And uh, you know, if we go inventing new ways, even if they were maybe the way the the, the the text once was meant to be read way back when, that has no bearing on right now. Right now, you know, as 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 uh, uh, the author of the Shulchan Aruch, the Code of Jewish Law, Rabbi Joseph Kauer wrote, we live in an age where we face the threat of many Torahs, that's his word, many Torahs, many, many people interpreting the law as they see fit. And then you and I will never be able to keep Shabbat together or eat in each other's homes hmm. because each and every one of us will have a different opinion of the law. So so the, the, the question of how might the Torah have once meant things to be? It might have meant it at one point, but the, 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 the permission is given over to the sages of Israel to determine the law for their generation and each, each and every generation. And therefore, we have right. the law that we have today. That's my no, I, I agree. I agree with that. And that's what I emphasize to my students in terms of we can't just, you know, it says an eye for an eye. We don't just read that. Literally, we have a tradition as to how to understand that phrase, like mm -hmm. any phrase in the Bible, mm -hmm. no different than, let's say, homosexuality. I'm bringing it up just because, you know, I'm struggling with this because I, when I read the Torah, it sure. does it seem. Yeah. 
like it just seems to be a written within a certain cultural and, and you're acknowledging that as a, as a bible scholar but it then gives license i feel to some people to say well let's understand it within the times that it was that 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 it that it's describing these stories at a certain period of time so that's what it meant over then homosexuality meant that then you know what i'm saying that's that, that that's the only concern um but listen, we do have Rishonim, as you said. We do have great commentators and sages um, that that do look at these Bible stories and verses in the Torah within the context of their time. They they clearly did. Yeah. All right. Heavy stuff. <laughs> I want to thank you for your time. I could literally sit here forever and continue to pick your brain on this. But, you know, I, I don't have to tell you what an important position you occupy, Rabbi Berman, as oh, trying to um, to synthesize, as my teacher, Rabbi, Rabbi Lamb of blessed memory, mm. um, who used to like used, like to use the word synthesize of like the best of Western right. culture right. with, yeah. right. I right. feel right. like you're doing that a lot with, um, mm. I feel like you're doing that a lot with the Torah, with the Bible, and we should be bringing you more into the world of outreach because um people respect okay. literary yeah. scholarship mm -hmm. so you let me know the next time you're in new york it would be a great honor okay to be able All to right. host you here um but i thank you for your time and for your scholarship and your expertise and shem should bless you you should continue to write and publish and teach for many many years and continue to illuminate and to elucidate uh our torah for us Amen. Thank you, Rabbi Wiles, and thank you for everyone who's listened in today.